Well, thank you very much, Elaine. Uh, and thank you and thank our TV audience for joining us on this very special occasion, the 200th anniversary of the birthday of Charles Darwin <laughs> and Abraham Lincoln. Seriously, allow me to provide a little bit of context for tonight's event. The Lincoln-Douglas debates took place in 1858 in Illinois. They were not presidential debates. They were debates over who was going to win the Senate seat. Douglas was the incumbent U.S. Senator from the state of Illinois. Now Lincoln was the underdog and so he challenged, as a good underdog would, he challenged Douglas to debate him and Douglas accepted. There were seven debates in all. Uh, each took place in a different uh, uh, location around Illinois and each was three hours in length. <laughs> now, that's 21 hours of debate in all and by my calculation we'll be finished by four o'clock tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> FEMA will be sending in the water. Now the format of the Lincoln-Douglas debates was consistent throughout. Uh, the first speaker would get up and go for 60 minutes. Imagine that on CNN today. <laughs> then the other debater would get up for 90 minutes and then the first speaker would get up and finish out at 30 minutes. Now these debates provided frontier entertainment. Uh, they were wild affairs. Uh, it would be sort of like getting Al Franken and Ann Coulter together today. <laughs> But of course they were so much more than entertainment because in these debates Lincoln and Douglas plumbed some of the most serious themes in American history. The nature of our republic, the interpretation of our constitution, that peculiar institution slavery, and especially, especially the problem of the expansion of slavery into the West. Also, the new profession of stenography was just getting established at this time on the frontier. And stenographers would take down their notes and then they would translate them and use a new uh, technology, the telegraph, to get the debate verbatim to the newspapers around the nation. And that's one of the reasons that these debates became so famous so quickly, not just in the United States, but around the world. Uh, you could almost say that the Lincoln-Douglas debates join other state papers in U.S. history. Uh, for example, I would compare them to the Federalist, Anti-Federalist papers from 70 years earlier. Well, for all these reasons, the legacy of the Lincoln-Douglas debates is enormous. And perhaps the most important legacy of all is that it propelled a young frontier Illinois lawyer onto the national stage. Popular sovereignty is what we talk about here, sir. Mr. Whitney. Two talented Illinois lawyers are coming on the stage. Please. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Senator Stephen Douglas and former Congressman Abraham Lincoln. At age 21, I was Illinois Secretary of State. 
At age 27, I was a justice in the Illinois Supreme Court. At age 30, I was a congressman. At age 37, I was a U.S. senator. And at age 41, I was the head of the Democratic National Party. And I'm still playing second fiddle to him. Well, I tell you that I was a lawyer. I was a member of the party called the Whigs, the party of Daniel Webster, the party of Henry Clay. Now, we had the feeling that by 1820, we had kept the lid on slavery, uh, locating it below what we called the Missouri Compromise Line. When Tom Jefferson purchased uh, the Louisiana Purchase from France in 1803, uh, six years before I was born, uh, they established a, uh, an area of territories within that, and in 1820, the territory called Missouri applied for statehood. But they wanted to become a slave state. And the Congress said, all right. So we're letting slavery legally expand across the Mississippi River, but they carefully drew a line 36 degrees and 30 minutes north latitude, going from that west bank of the Mississippi out to the area that he purchased the end of that area, someday they'll probably say, well, now that's halfway through Colorado. But below that line, slavery was legal, and above it, it was not. And this man, Mr. Douglas, seemed to endorse that plan very well. I felt content with it. Now, Mr. Douglas, uh, in 1854, reveals another side of his thinking with the Kansas-Nebraska bill, which we'll talk about. But I would say my new Republican Party, founded right here in Jackson, Michigan, 1854, would approach this man in 1858 and say, Mr. Lincoln, our candidate, needs to be seen by the same crowd as your people are, so he needs a, uh, a platform with Mr. Douglas for some debates around the state. So at first, Mr. Lincoln followed me around the state and dogged me everywhere. And it seemed that Mr. Lincoln wanted to debate me, and I said yes. But he wanted to debate over 100 times. I said no, seven times. We'd already spoken in Springfield and Chicago, and we went to the seven congressional districts. The first district, Ottawa. And I lambasted him. He did not know what hit him. Well, I reckon that was a, a little unpreparedness on my part. I remember that uh, I did try to say one thing which would outline the debates. I, um, I, I spoke and I said, it has long been a grave question in this country about Mr. Douglas and myself's view on slavery. The leading man, I think I may do, Chief uh, Judge Douglas, the honor of calling him Sitch, advocating the present democratic policy, never himself says slavery is wrong. He has the high distinction, so far as I know, of never having said that slavery is either right or wrong. Almost everybody says one thing or the other. I confess myself as belonging to that class in the country which contemplates slavery as a moral, social, and political evil having due regard for its actual existence amongst us and of the, the problem of getting rid of it in any satisfactory way. 
and of all the constitutional obligations which have been thrown about it. But nevertheless, desire a policy that looks to the prevention of it as a wrong and looks hopefully to the time when as a wrong, it may come to an end. That's what the debates were all about. Here we had slavery hopefully contained. We could work on its extinction. And Mr. Douglas comes along and talks about several ways to get slavery expanded. Well, after Ottawa, we came to Freeport. At this time, I am one of the top pol political people in the country, and I am on a high. But however, Freeport changed that. Well, Freeport, uh, I responded to seven questions that he had given to me over in uh, Ottawa. You see, this man tried to paint me uh, in the abolitionist mode. He tried to make me a radical. I was not. When the program was developed here in Jackson, Michigan in 1854, it was a combination of my Whig leaders, the abolitionist leaders, the Free Soilers, and the American Party. They all hated slavery, and they all belonged to four small parties. They said, let us come together, and we may have a new energy, and the numbers to go to the polls is small, and say absolutely no further extension of slavery. They never said do away with it. No, they couldn't. It was, it was protected by our Constitution. But you could stand against it, you see. So in that group were the abolitionists. And he tried to paint me as the man who, like John Brown out in Bleeding Kansas, would react totally different than anything that I would have ever condoned. So his idea was to make me a radical. And I tried to answer the seven questions he had given me saying that I believe that any new state could come in with slavery, but that it had not had the right to have slavery in the territories. I thought if the people upon entrance as a state wanted slavery, that was the time for them to declare it. Not to have slavery introduced in the territories above that Missouri Compromise line. I thought the Congress had the right to keep it out of there. And as we went through other questions, he asked about what I would do about slavery in our nation's capital. Now, I had been in Congress right after James Smithson in England sent all that money over to have a historical development program of our history in Washington City. And they were just building the Smithsonian. And as I would walk by it to go to the Capitol in the Congress, there were the holding pens for the slaves. It was ridiculous, it was sickening to think that this capital of the free world would yet have slavery. So I spoke to Mr. Douglas on another question that he had issued me. I said, I am only in favor of the District of Columbia voting on the issue, whether they want it or not, and if they do a thumbs down on it, I am in favor of gradual uh, compensated emancipation. I was not the radical that he was trying to paint me. I was asked the Freeport question, and that Freeport question was, could any territory claim to keep slavery out of the territory when the Congress said it was, well, the, the Congress said you cannot keep slavery out of a territory. Now, he was not talking to Southern Democrats. He was talking to Northern Democrats who really didn't have much of an interest in slavery expansion. So I gave him that a question and he gave me an answer. 
I answer emphatically. As Mr. Lincoln has heard me answer a hundred times from every stump in Illinois, that in my opinion, the people of a territory can, by lawful means, exclude slavery from their legal limits prior to the formation of a state constitution. Mr. Lincoln has heard me answer that question over and over again. He heard me argue that Nebraska bill in 1854, 1855, and in 1856, and he has no right to pretend to be in doubt as to my position on that question. But I wanted the stenographers to be sure that they would carry that message which would go into Southern newspapers. This man had an eye on the White House, but he knew that he couldn't get out there without Southern help. So the idea to me of popular sovereignty, moving slavery across that line into the territories was only going to en enhance him, uh, give him the following of Southern voters who would put him in the White House. So I, I thought he had a motive there, and I, uh, I wanted him to say it so the Southern press would uh, copy that and let their readers know that this man maybe wasn't their champion on slavery expansion after all. I have said a hundred times, and have now no inclination to take it back, that I believe there is no right and ought to be no inclination in the people of the free states to enter into the slave states and interfere with the question of slavery at all. He believes there is no right on the part of the free people of the free states to enter the slave states and interfere with the question of slavery. Hence, he does not propose to go into Kentucky and stir up a civil war and a servile war between the blacks and the whites. All he proposes is to invite the people of Illinois and every other free state to band together as one sectional party governed and divided by a geographical line to make war upon the institution of slavery in the slaveholding states. He is going to carry it out by means of a political party that has an adherence only in the free states a political party that does not pretend that it can give a vote. He is going to elect a president of the United States, form a cabinet, and administer the government on sectional grounds, being the power of the North over that of the South. No, not at all. I never would do these things he's talking about. Uh, challenge Virginia and Kentucky to get rid of what they already legally have by the Constitution. I, uh, I would be a person who looks at his statement and say, I think he's saying that he doesn't care if slavery is voted up or voted down. Let the people in that territory decide. But it was already decided by, by the government. The 1820 Compromise said slavery shall never go above that line. Now, I remember when this all came up in 1854, not too long ago, and I was overwhelmed, astonished, that here would be a thought that we had lived with comfortably the policy of 1820 and again the policy of 1850 when California became a free state and we agreed to strengthen our fugitive slave laws. Slavery was the thing that was tugging at us and we were going to sleep each night in the view that slavery was going to be limited, going to be contained. And then with the Kansas-Nebraska Bill in 1854 put a whole new light on it. But I remember, as a leader, trying to make a speech down in, it, well, in Peoria, Illinois, in 1854, immediately after this happened. I said, we must contain it, but I have no, I have no feeling of, of, of hatred against Southern people. 
They are just what we would be in their situation. If slavery did not now exist amongst them, they would not introduce it. If it did now exist amongst us, we should not instantly give it up. When Southern people tell us they are no more responsible for the origin of slavery than we, I acknowledge the fact. When it is said that the institution exists and that it will be difficult to get rid of it in any satisfactory way, I, I, I commend that saying. I certainly will not blame them for not doing what I should not know how to do myself. If all earthly power were given me, I would not know what to do about the institution of slavery. And yet I have always said that I believe all men, all men should be free. Now, if the Negro is a man, then my ancient faith teaches me that all men are created equal, and there can be no moral right in connection with one man's making a slave of another man. So that's what this was all about. If he's toying around with humanity being the ploy of the white man to do as he sees fit, that's our argument. Now with the Kansas-Nebraska Act, Lincoln believed it was all about slavery. But I believe in the United States of America and I wanted all Americans to prosper. I wanted a transportation system from one side of the continent to the other. If there was not organized legal governments in Kansas or organized legal governments in Nebraska, a railroad would not go through. We needed transportation in order to prosper. Well, that's, uh, that's very noble. I, I can see that. Uh, but I, uh, I do believe that uh, what I said still has some truth. I, I remember when I came to... Uh, to nearby, um, um, well, um, Kalamazoo, Michigan, 1856, just two years ago, uh, I was asked to come to speak on behalf of the first Republican candidate for president, John C. Fremont. And when I arrived on that August day over in Bronson Park, I think there was a Grand Rapids Glee Club there, so you, you were represented. And uh, I told the people that we, the American people, find ourselves at once the wonder and admiration of the whole world. And we must inquire of ourselves what has given us such prosperity. And we shall understand that to give up that one thing would be to give up all future prosperity. This cause is that in America, every man can make the most of himself. It has been said that such a race of prosperity has been run in no other country in the world. So I can agree on the economy, the economic beliefs that Mr. Douglas is promoting with that. But I think that the idea that you would have to let them have some influence about choosing slavery in the mix of that is totally uncalled for. I am a law-abiding man. I will sustain the constitution of my country as our fathers have made it. I will yield obedience to the law, sir, whether I like them or not as I find them on the statute book. I will sustain the judicial tribunals and constituted authorities in all matters within the pale of the jurisdiction as defined by the Constitution. But I am equally free to say that the reason assigned by Mr. Lincoln for resisting the decision of the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott case does not in itself meet my approbation. He objects to it because that decision declared that a Negro, Negro descended from African parents 
who were brought here and sold as slaves is not and cannot be a citizen of the United States. He says it is wrong because it deprives the Negro of the benefits of that clause of the Constitution which says that citizens of one state shall enjoy all the privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states. In other words, he thinks it's wrong because it deprives the Negro of the privileges, immunities, and rights of citizenship which pertain, according to that decision, only to the white man. I am free to say to you that, in my opinion, this government of ours is founded on the white basis. It was made by the white man for the benefit of the white man to be administered by white men in such a matter as they should determine. Well, we have the problem again with the Missouri Compromise Law. Uh, if it's to keep slavery from going north of the line, how could this man, Dred Scott from St. Louis, owned by a, a doctor, have that doctor remove him to our state of Illinois, a free state, no slavery, and on up into Wisconsin, a free state, kept there for an unusually long time, encouraging Dred Scott to uh, secure a, 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 a lawyer's hearing on, on his freedom, and then to be told, as the Chief Justice Roger B. Taney read the, the the majority dictate from the Supreme Court, your skin is not the right color. You have no rights. You cannot sue for your freedom. So that, again, strengthens, I believe, what I was, what I was thinking. And when he and I talked at Charleston, Illinois, I think he tried to pin me down about the equality of the two races. And I said, I have never considered the equality of the two races. I said, if I have to make a choice, the white race is up here. But I said, I have never advocated the use of injuries for the black man. I have never indicated the right to vote at this point in 1858. But I said, the bread that that man makes should be fitted into his mouth by his hands, not into the mouth of his master, that he has certain uh, moral writes about him. So I tried to endure uh, the whole question at, at Charleston, Illinois, and to not make myself that radical that I think you were painting me. Well, I also stated that it is also true that a Negro, an Indian, or any other man other than a white man should be permitted to enjoy, and humanity requires that he should have all the rights, privileges, and immunities which he is capable of exercising consistent with the safety of society. I would give him every right and every privilege which his capacity would enable him to enjoy, consistent with the good of the society in which he lived. Well, we note that there are free black people living in New England and in the North, yet they do not have the right to vote in my state of Illinois. I'm not so sure that they will ever be given a voice in free government, and this, of course, concerns me. The other thing is that as you look at our state of Illinois, we would have a north, a middle, and a south. And in the north, the migration had come from New England. That tells you they're pretty much abolitionists. And in the south, they have migrated up over that Ohio River into an area that's free, Illinois, Ohio, Indiana, you cannot have slaves. But they have left slaveholders 
Some of their best friends are behind them, owning slaves. Some of their, some of their families are slave owners. So the idea was to play for the center part, to get the votes from that center part. So Mr. Douglas at Jonesboro was very favorable uh, in, with the crowd. He, he was their man talking about the slavery issue. But he brought out the point in his view that I was kind of wishy-washy, that I spoke one way up in front of those abolitionists in Chicago and totally another way down here, that they were hearing a different message. I just responded, I came up, I said, well, it appears to me that Douglas is trying to tell you that I'm two-faced. I ask you if I were two-faced, would I wear this one all the time? <laughs> When dealing with popular sovereignty, it is the right for the nation to decide. It is the right for them to choose their own destiny. If Nebraska wants slavery, then the voters shall vote for it. If Kansas does not want slavery, then their voters should not vote for it. My belief is that in order for a country to be prosperous, the people need to decide. Well, I, again, I, I, I am a little puzzled how he could manipulate this into an area that has already been decided and uh, to take it that step further. But of our seven debates, they were followed greatly by the press. The New York Tribune, uh, Horace Greeley, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Philadelphia Eagle, they all sent reporters out, and they have written their stories home about the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So I trust that after the debates are over, people in Buffalo and Baltimore will know far more about me uh, than they did before, and certainly this man is the most prominent lawyer figure and voice of the Democratic Party in Illinois and future of the nation. It seems that the Lecompton Constitution was a major issue at that time also. And I stated in my debate, you but speak rightly, when you assert that during the last session of Congress that there was an attempt to violate one of the fundamental principles upon which all our free institutions rest. The attempt to force the Lecompton Constitution upon the people of Kansas against their will would have been, if successful, subversive of the great fundamental principles upon which all our institutions rest. If there is any one principle more sacred and more vital to the existence of a free government than all others, it is the right of the people to form and ratify the Constitution under which they are to live. It is the cornerstone of the Temple of Liberty. It is the foundation upon which the whole structure rests. And when it can be successfully evaded, self-government has received a vital stab. I deemed it my duty as a citizen and as a representative of the state of Illinois to resist with all of my energies and with whatever ability I could command the consummation of that effort to force a constitution upon an unwilling people. Because the pro-slavery people in Missouri were crossing the line and they were influencing the construction of that new constitution. It was not legal, it was going to be a pro-slavery document. 
Now, thanks to his good wisdom and his good heart, he recognized that, and he turned against it. But do you know when he turned against it? It made people like Horace Greeley, it made my good friend John Crittenden, a man whom I had voted for many times from Kentucky, turn against me, saying, well, the hero is really Mr. Douglas. Look how he has approached the Lecompton Constitution. He's not so bad after all. I said, nonsense. We Republicans in Illinois can't be interfered with with outside voices. If it hadn't been for Douglas with his Kansas-Nebraska bill, this issue would never have been on fire like it is. And when you talk about the Lecompton Constitution, you get the movement to warfare, the guns, the John Browns, the Potawatomi massacre. You get people who are fed up with it in this country. In 1850, we had to agree to strengthen that fugitive law, the slave law. And people in this great state of Wisconsin felt sorry for them, for the slaves running away, risking their lives and said, we refuse to turn them back over to their owners. We're going to create the, the, this, this law, the freedom law, for those who have, re have gotten here. And they hated the brutality with which they were tracked down. People in Pennsylvania, people in New York City, looked at the brutality of slavery right in their backyards as these people were tried to be taken back by their owners coming up from the South after them. Slavery is built on poor morality and poor economics, so um, uh, these are my feelings strongly. During the debates, I accused, accused Mr. Lincoln of being an abolitionist. I accused him of not supporting our troops in the Mexican War. Uh, I, I, I wasn't that abolitionist. Free soldier, I could agree with them. No slavery in the territories, only free labor, or you will rob that area of a great economic future. I could agree with the American Party. I could agree with the Whigs. But I couldn't agree with the abolitionists. I thought the abolitionists turned off as many people as they gathered into the Klan. So I really was, was uh, not warm to the abolitionists. But what he said about the Mexican War when I was in Congress, I thought we had no business in Mexico. We had argued with Great Britain about the, the uh, boundary between Canada and the United States, that part that had not yet been fixed from the Rockies out to the Pacific. We said that has to be 54th parallel. If it's not 5440, we'll fight. And President Polk, I suppose his hero, said, well, we're going to settle it at the, 50, at the 49th parallel, which it is today. That meant we gave up a lot of land. Now, did Polk put American troops in Mexico to grab land to compensate for that loss? My Whigs accused him of that, and I thought we were the aggressors. We shouldn't have been there, but I also saw something else. There was going to be a land settlement coming out of Mexico, and the land would be developed first into territories and then into states, and those states would be in an area below the Missouri Compromise Line. And so when those states came in, they would be electing additional legislators with slave interest coming back to our Congress and swing the balance in favor of slave legislation. So I was against that. But I never, I never said that I would vote against, and I'm on record, and I'm on record as not having said that I would ever deprive of our troops the necessary supplies and food and equipment that they needed. I also accused Mr. Lincoln of being a sectionalist because of his house-divided speech. 
Well, I suppose you could sum it up in one way. Uh, when the Republicans nominated me to run against him, 1858, I made an introductory speech at the old state house in, in Springfield. I said, if we could first know where we are and whither we are tending, we could then better judge what to do and how to do it. We are now far into the fifth year since a plan has been initiated with the avowed object and confidence of getting rid of slavery agitation. Under the implementation of that policy, not only has slavery aggravation expanded, or not decreased, but it has expanded. And in my opinion, it will not reach a conclusion, not decrease, until a crisis has been reached and passed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the government to, uh, or the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind is at rest in the view that it is on the course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward until it becomes lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. Hmm. Lincoln, let me get this straight. His first and main proposition, ladies and gentlemen, I will give in his own language, scripture quotations and all. I give his exact language, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it to cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. In other words, Mr. Lincoln asserts as a fundamental principle of this government that there must be uniformity in the local laws and domestic institutions of each and all the states of the Union. And he therefore invites all the non-slaveholding states to band together, organize as one body, and make war upon slavery in Kentucky, upon slavery in Virginia, upon the Carolinas, upon slavery in all the slaveholding states in the Union, and to persevere in that war until it shall be exterminated. He then notifies the slaveholding states to stand together as a unit and make an aggressive war against the free states of this Union with a view of establishing slavery in them all of forcing it upon Illinois, of forcing it upon New York, upon New England, and upon every other free state, and that they shall keep up the warfare until it has been formally established in them all. In other words, Mr. Lincoln advocates boldly and clearly a war of sections, a war of the North against the South, of the free states against the slave states, a war of extermination to be continued relentlessly until the one or the other shall be subdued and all the states shall either become free or become slaves. That interpretation was not what I was planning on. I, uh, 
I said those words with the idea that if we could keep slavery contained and let cool heads prevail, and knowing that uh, the way to extinction of it was containment, not to let it back and get larger in the North, we would have a chance to do this. I understood its constitutionality, as I have said several times tonight, but the idea was to keep it contained. And this is what I would be for. Never would I advocate warfare among our own citizens over the slavery issue or any other issue. It was a matter of settling it at the bargain table. We thought we had done that in 1820 with the Missouri Compromise. We thought we had reestablished that in 1850 with California coming in free and the slavery, uh, uh, the fugitive slave law being enforced. So I suppose that you might spread this along among your followers, but I would hope that they would have a level head in sensing that I wasn't advocating anything like that at all. And I always went back to our Declaration of Independence. The idea that we were a country not only built on laws, but a country built on principle. And we had to live up to that principle, that all men are created <coughs> equal, that it was a fundamental reasoning of why this government started. There might be some questions coming to us from the audience. <coughs> Remember, the press would never have been this quiet. They would have had many, <laughs> many things that they would like to inquire about. Anything about, uh, I see a hand way back there. I was pretty much uh, extemporaneous. Uh, I did have, in, throughout my life, I had some speeches written down, but uh, I think that we were pretty much extemporaneous in our view of what we were going to say. We had our motives, we had our vision, we had what we wanted to say, and uh, so I think uh, outside of the uh, idea of, the, of the, uh, what I had said in Springfield at the uh, uh, House Divided speech, and my little paragraph that I spoke of in Peoria, uh, I think everything else was extemporaneous. And you must remember that because of no instant analysis by a group of network talking heads. <laughs> we needed to pound our point over and over and over again. So I had Douglas had notes, I had notes, and I spoke off of those notes, but most of it was extemporaneous. Front row. Mr. Douglas, why did you accept his challenge to debates in seven debates when you'd already made speeches and you were the leading candidate and well known? Who did that? I was asked why I decided to debate him, <laughs> even though I was the top dog in the country. Speaking of dog, Honest Abe dogged me throughout the state. When I would give a speech, he would be there waiting around. And once I would finish, he would stand and he would state, 
Please wait a while. I will give you my interpretation of what I believe. And, Mr. Douglas, some of those were the following day, but the people would have a tent or camp out with their buckboard and stay to hear my remarks, but that uh, it wasn't like the two of us being together. Actually. No, not at all. <clears throat> I think it was weakness. I think it was pure weakness and also the little giant. I knew I was the best. And why not just whip him into submission? Right here, the red shirt. <clears throat> Mr. Lincoln, there's a story that you once walked several miles to repay several cents that had been paid extra by a lady who had uh, bought something from you at your store. I was wondering if you could just confirm that story to those who doubt it. He's asking about the New Salem situation where I was a storekeeper and a lady overpaid me. Uh, I think it was three cents, and a penny would buy a loaf of bread at that time. Uh, three cents would buy a pound of pork. So when the lady left, I thought, well, I'm this much better off. But all of us have conscience, and I realized during the day I had never done a lick of work to get that money. It was hers. She and her husband had four boys. So I walked to her home that night, and she hadn't realized she'd overpaid me, so she circulated that story. Yeah, very true, very true. In back, yes. Well, you know, I, <coughs> uh, later on, when Mr. Douglas and I, two years down the road, would run for the White House, uh, we had company. <clears throat> the Democrats divided. Mr. Douglas was acceptable only in the North. Southerners said he's not our champion on slavery expansion. We're going to run John Breckinridge. <clears throat> and John Bell came in as an independent. At the time that the campaign started, I had no facial hair. But I received a letter from a little girl in Westfield, New York. She said her name was Grace Bedell. She said she was 11. The evening before, she said her father came home from the county fair with a poster. She said they enrolled the poster. There were the pictures of the four men running for president. And you, sir, are not the most handsome of the group. <laughs> so uh, she, she thought whiskers would en be enhancing. And people had always kidded me about the size of my ears, so I thought, well, a little facial hair will help that out. So, so that's, that's true. Yes, sir? Mr. Lincoln, uh, when you look back on history, is there a politician that you especially looked at uh, to shape your own views? And was there a book or books that you read with uh, sincerity to shape your well, I think the man I admired the most was Henry Clay, a man from Mrs. Lincoln's hometown of Lexington, Kentucky, a man who ran for president several times, never made it, but his ideas on economics, what this country was built upon, his starting of the National Road coming out of Cambridge, Maryland, up through Wheeling and over to uh, Indianapolis, uh, all of these things. And when I first served in the Illinois legislature, it was in Bandalia, Illinois, not Springfield, and that's where that national road was running. So economics and clay, I think, important to me. And I also enjoyed, as a youngster, reading about our history. Books were very scarce on the frontier, and I would borrow. You never knew when you might find a farmer down the road who owned three or four books, so I could borrow. And when I read about Washington, Ben Franklin, that gave me a concept of how this country started, and I think I was, uh, I was always amazed 
and uh, preferred reading our history. And sir, may I add, I was the first to date Mary Todd. <laughs> she told me all about that. There. <laughs> the lady over here. I, I'm not, Lincoln? <laughs> he deals with Henry Clay. When I would sit and speak with Mary, she was good friends with Henry Clay. I couldn't stand Henry Clay. However, Abraham loved listening to stories about Henry Clay. Douglas moved away, and Lincoln came in and swept Mary off her feet, thanks to Henry Clay. We have a lady right here. Uh, Mrs. Lincoln was very ambitious. She asked what Mary thought about my political ambitions. Uh, Mrs. Lincoln was ambitious for me. Um, she uh, pushed me, not really pushed me, she didn't have to push me into the political arena, but she was there for support. So um, I, a very um, uh, uh, fine lady, uh, uh, her father, Robert, uh, Robert Todd, was president of the Bank of Kentucky uh, he was an established attorney in Lexington. He could afford to send his children to the best in private schools. They had wanted for little. So when this announcement came in the Springfield paper about our marriage in November of 1842, some of my old weak friends came to me. They said, uh, Lincoln, uh, keep this in mind. Here are the Todds. Here are the Lincolns. You've been a log cabin fellow all your life. You've never had to think much about manners and grooming. We don't think this can work. I said, well, I, I know uh, we're going to try to make it work. I, I know that the Todds do spell that name, T-O-D-D, -D, and everyone knew that one D had been perfectly good enough for God, so I just... <laughs> you, you pick one, Stephen. Uh, yes, yes. yes, sir. Well, he's talking about the wrestling match back in Spring, back in New Salem when I first went there. Uh, Jack Armstrong, and he lived over in Clary's Grove, away from uh, from uh, little New Salem where I was. And on Saturday afternoons, he and five or six pug uglies would come into Spring into New, New Salem, and they would threaten these little storekeepers, and they'd say, "Unless you give us beer and sandwich, we're going to tear you up." And right after I got there, working in Offutt's store, he came into Offutt's store. Offit said, wait a minute. He said, I've got somebody here who can take you, Armstrong. And he pointed to me. <laughs> well, I didn't know, but I was almost forced into it. But I think it was a draw. I don't think he won. I don't think I won. But you know, he settled down. He found a, a wife. He married her. They'd invite me out to their cabin on Sundays after church for cornbread and mush. So I, I think uh, we established a good rapport there. Yes. How did I violate them? <laughs> well, I think number one can be, uh, I, I think number one could be reviewed tonight in the sentiments I expressed about 
equality, about Jefferson saying all men are created equal. Now that was a purely revolutionary document that he drew up to break away from King George. But he put in there, all men are created equal. He himself owned slaves, but he knew this was going to be put in front of generation after generation, and it would begin to stick. Now, how did I use that? I employed it all through my life. Uh, I moved incrementally. Uh, when Douglas said a while ago that I was promoting warfare, no, I wanted to keep it contained and we could work from there, step by step. It didn't have to be instantaneously. And the other thing is, if I violated it, I think you're talking maybe more about the Constitution than you are my dream of the Declaration. Because the Constitution, I felt, had already been violated by those states that pulled away. I didn't think it was constitutional for a state to secede from the Union. But that's what happened, and when I took the oath, there were seven states on the outside looking in. So certainly I had to do away with the writ of habeas corpus. I had to have some of the suspected Southern sympathizers in the Maryland State Legislature who might vote for secession be rounded up and put in Fort McHenry so they couldn't vote for secession. I was criticized by Judge Tawney about my actions of the Constitution, and, uh, unconstitutional. And I said, what I have done, if I have violated the Constitution, has been to keep the country together. It was violated before me to break it up. Thank you. Yes, sir. Well, I think Mr. Polk was trying to put men in Mexico. Now consider the Rio Grande and consider the Noose River. The territory in there between was almost a no man's land. It had never been defined as to who actually owned it, Mexico or Texas. Now, where did the first drop of blood fall? I think it was in that area but Mr. Polk said, no, it was north of the news, which meant they had invaded us, and I don't think they had. And so he called for military action. So I said, I believe we are the aggressors, and as I answered earlier, we would come out with land for Mexico that would develop into new states, which would have two senators and who knows how many congressmen coming to Washington City to vote for state legislation in favor of, 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 of slavery because it would be legal where they came in as new states. Not the states he was arguing about with me earlier that were above that Missouri Compromise line, you see. Uh, over here on the corner. Uh, Mr. Douglas, would you trace, briefly trace your political career after the debates? Well, sir, after the debates, <clears throat> I ran for president. We all know how that turned out. <laughs> but then it's not well known that I died soon after. I died at age 48. I died of typhus. Uh, but in all reality, because of the strain and stress of the debates and the presidential campaigns, uh, there were many debates in which I had bronchitis, I had laryngitis, I was quite ill and, and hospitalized at times. 
but I died at age 48, and if you look at it closely, I ate, drank, and smoked myself to death. <laughs> Which, I was a fool because my second wife, Adele, who was the niece of Dolly Madison, Adele Cutts, uh, I had two sons at the time I passed away, 1411, and my wife, Adele, was 21 years younger than I was. What a stupid fool I was. <laughs> but my political aspects after the presidential race and after I lost, I knew one thing, and that was I loved my country. And after Fort Sumter was fired upon, two days later, I came to President Lincoln. He did. Fort Sumter was fired on 12th of April, it was a Friday, 1861, and the Sunday night after, he, Mr. Douglas, came to the White House. He said, Mr. President, you know you and I have tangled over issues for years, but he said, I want you to know that I realize this is my country, and I want to be involved in saving it. And then, he said, you remember in 1858, I defeated you in the southern part of Illinois where those people had migrated from Kentucky and Indiana, or Kentucky and Tennessee to get to Illinois because they had slave owners back in their families. And he said, I also defeated you there in the recent election for the presidency. I took Southern Illinois. Now he said, those people will listen to me. I can be persuasive. So I would like to go back to Southern Illinois and try to align them into the fold of how important it is to save this great union. So with my blessings, he went, and I was ever so grateful. And then that summer, he would collapse and, and die. And we saw to it that all of the government buildings in Washington City were draped in black for 30 days in honor of this man, Mr. Stephen A. Douglas. And I also remember as I was riding back in the train, I, I stated that I could read at night because of all of the Douglas dummies that were being burned in effigy. <laughs> but it didn't matter to me. I knew it was the end very soon. And if I could do anything for my country, and I, I truly believe that if I would have been around another 15, 20 years, that there may be more books on me, or there may be more discussion on me. It wasn't because I didn't love my country and didn't do my best. It was because I just wasn't around long enough to make a difference. I see a twosome back there. Oh. You could not be married to Mary Todd and not know that that was happening. <laughs> when, uh, when I was in Congress in 1847 to 49, specifically the year 1848, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and uh, Amelia Bloomer were holding women's meetings up in Seneca Falls, New York. And they were saying, our husbands are abolitionists. They're out there fighting for the black man. What do we white women have? Nothing. We can't have property settlements. We can't be considered in, in, uh, as voters. And I think the women's movement started right there. 
but it was actually 16 years before that, 1832, when back in Illinois, I ran for the state legislature. And I put a handbill out of 10 things that I would work on if elected. Number one, I said, is going to be to work to convince the state legislature that we are going to have to have more support financially and whatever it takes to draw teachers from the East out to teach our children. A free government depends upon every generation being educated or it'll lose itself. And then number two, I said, I am in favor of all sharing the vote who bear their burden of taxes, and that includes women. 1832. Uh, yes, sir, next. <laughs> he won't want to say that. I did. Now, can you imagine winning the popular vote and not getting the office? <laughs> well, until the next century, the senator from any state would not be elected by the popular vote. It would be the state legislature. And in Illinois, we had 100 legislative districts. When the votes came back, I had won the popular vote, but the breakdown of the House, the state legislature, of those 100 seats, 46 Republicans, 54 Democrats. The incumbent went back to Washington. And the idea of Douglas not becoming president dealt a lot with the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Or, did you know back in 1858 they were called the Douglas-Lincoln debates? <laughs> you learn something new every day. There's a lady right down here on your left, Senator. Yes. Why, what, what has happened? I mean, you know they would never hire a big-eared politician from Illinois. Uh, well, I don't know if women have the vote now. Uh, I know that Frederick Douglass came to me at the White House in 1862 before the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. And he said, Lincoln, you have to use colored troops. I said, no, Frederick. I said, the South has put out an edict that says, you don't send a black man in uniform down here. If our slaves see him with that gleaming bayonet and the brass buttons, they're likely to get so excited they'll rise up and mutiny, kill their owners, so they can follow that army north. So we're telling you, to avoid that, don't send any black troops here. If you do, and we capture them, they don't go to prison. They go to the firing squad, or they go to the depths of the Gulf, where they'll be put in slavery, and you'll never see them again. So I said, I don't want to do it, Frederick. He said, well, Mr. Lincoln, when did the African slave trade end? I said, 1808. 
Well, he said here in 1862, I don't think that these young men who want to go were born in Africa. They were born here. They don't want to call Africa home. They want to call America home. And they know this is their war. And they deserve the right to fight in it. And by fighting in it, they will show others they deserve the right of citizenship. And with citizenship comes the right to vote. So little by little, the government moves. And maybe that will lead along to your answer. And to answer from my viewpoint of politics in the state of Illinois. <laughs> As a proud Illinois politician, I am embarrassed. But most of all, I have much better hair than the former governor. <laughs> Well, I think he's clearly defining not any one person from Illinois, but how the state has been run. So both of us have some issue there. <laughs> Time for three or four more. Back there. Mr. Lincoln, to what extent did slavery exist in your wife's side of the family? Well, there's no doubt that uh, Mr. Todd had six house servants, which were really slaves there in Lexington, Kentucky. But see, Mary broke away from that when she was 19. She did not get along with her stepmother, and her sister, who had married the governor of Illinois' son, found out about that difficult relationship, so they invited her to come live there. So that's how Stephen and I would have met Mary Todd. But the idea is she had broken away from slavery and saw how dehumanizing it was. So she didn't line up on the camp of, of slavery protection at all. That is Brandon Vermont. How come you came to Illinois? Andrew Jackson. <coughs> After my father passed away, I didn't feel wanted in the East, and I knew I needed to move on. And I ended up in Jacksonville, Illinois. I was an itinerant teacher. I did anything. I built cabinets, built bureaus, and got into government. Uh, right here. <clears throat> Including me. You thought that as well. And uh, <clears throat> what were some of the ways you attempted to raise morale at that time when a lot of the people were very frustrated by how long it Well, the length of the war surprised so many people. 31 million people in the country, 20 million in the north, 11 in the south, and all the industry really in the north. But it was the leadership on the field of battle that was making the war prolonged. So after Fort Sumter was fired on, I called for 75,000 troops. But then we saw the leadership of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson at a little place right outside of Washington City called Manassas. And we knew it was going to be a longer war. And as you called for more troops, 300,000 at a time, the glamour of it all wore off. And where the enlistments were so great at the beginning, the camps were overflowing. But when they saw that some fellas didn't come home, except in a box, or that they came home with an eye gone or an arm gone. The glamour wore off of that, and we had to start conscription. Davis had to start it five months before I did, but we had to turn to that. And so you had to hope that the morale would keep up. You had to visit with the soldiers themselves and tell them what they were fighting for uh, was the thing that would be the guarantee of a country preserved with freedom and liberty 
for their offspring to the latest generation. There was a young hand back here. Yes. No, right, right here. This boy right here? Yeah. Who was my favorite president? I would think Washington beyond a doubt. When I read as a boy about what Washington did, how his enduring after Brandywine, September the 11th, a horrible loss that he had in 1777 to the British, and he was almost annihilated. And yet he endured Valley Forge, he came back and he won. And then he could have gone back to Mount Vernon and enjoyed a life of leisure, and the country called upon him to be its political leader for eight years. So to me, Washington was always number one because of what he did for his country and how he was unselfish. He gave of himself to his great country. Oh, if I would have been an advocate for slavery, I could have probably masked being an advocate for slavery when in 1850 this man proposed slavery expansion by bringing it into the territories, what he called popular sovereignty. I, I was making pretty good money. I was a lawyer. I was held on retainer by the Illinois Central Railroad. I could have kept right in my office. But it's what tells you that there is right and wrong. And we were about to extend a wrong. So that drew me out of my office. So in reality, we know how much I hated it and how much I knew that we could only work at it within the confines of the Constitution. This upset a lot of people, a lot of abolitionists. They thought I wasn't quick enough. But I, if I had been an advocate of slavery, I never would have had to expose it. He would have taken care of that for me because all I would have had to do when a bad thing came along was sit and say nothing and let it get large. I see over o here. Over, uh, over there? Yes. I will say my first wife, Martha, we received as a wedding gift a plantation, and it was put in her name. I then, when my wife, Martha, died early, uh, childbirth with our third child, and I remarried to Adele, uh, a plantation was put in Adele's name. There were plantations that I stayed away from. However, they were in our family name, but never with my name on the deed. Mr. Lincoln, would you comment on your views of your commanders of the Army of the Potomac? Well, I had so many of them. I, uh... <laughs> Well, you know, when I came on the scene, the generals were in place, and I could shuffle the deck, and I did that. I, uh, I, I replaced McDowell with McClellan. Now, if you can use a person where his or her uh, strengths are, that's wonderful. 
McClellan was an engineer. He thought like an engineer. He looked at the fiasco that had just about happened at, at Bull Run and knew that Washington could have been taken over by the Confederates had they come into town. Maybe it was divine providence that kept that from happening. It didn't happen, and he said, we have to make this city less vulnerable. He said, we've got to build a series of 64 forts around it. That's brilliant. He took that rundown army, they were defeated, they were down on themselves, and he instilled with them a new sense of pride. He got them to marching well, they were looking well, but that's as far as he went. He never wanted to put them in harm's way. He missed many opportunities. And I knew his strength was organization, so I gave him a second chance after the second Battle of Bull Run, which he had nothing to do with, but he rebuilt that army. And then he took it out to a place called Sharpsburg, Maryland. And on the 17th of September in 18, 1862, he defeated Robert E. Lee at what we called in the North the Battle of Antietam. And it gave me a political platform to stand upon and issue the Emancipation Proclamation. The war would go on for 30 months, but I've always said that the first step for freedom for the black man and woman in this country started September 17, 1862 with the victory at Antietam, which McClellan brought about. But that was all McClellan was gonna do. He sat in his tent, he did not pursue Lee. I went out and visited with him, told him how important it was for him to go ahead and go. Well, he didn't. That's when I'd had enough, I took him out. I sent him over to Trenton, New Jersey. There hadn't been any military activity there since 1776. I thought it so I went through others that were just as bad. Burnside and Hooker, I didn't find a good one until I found George Gordon Meade, and the result of Gettysburg turned out to be the winning battle in my mind of the war. And while I was disappointed with Meade not following Lee, I realized after three days that he had won a victory at Gettysburg. He had lifted the morale of Northerners who were so tired of the war they were willing to give up and let Davis have half the country which would end us, and he had sent a strong uh, idea over to Parliament. Don't you even recognize the Southern government because they're not going to be official. This government is going to be retained. We're not going to divide. So don't establish diplomatic relations with the South. We are going to keep this country together, and I think Meade was my winner finally at Gettysburg. Oh, it did. Did the Bible have an influence? And my father, mother, Baptist in Kentucky, uh, definitely. Uh, uh, the Bible, Genesis 1:27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. I went ahead a step further and said, nothing put on earth in the, in the image of the divine was ever put here to be imbruted by his fellows. I thought slavery was horrible. I thought that while it was tolerated in the Bible, it was never a racial issue. And this was, uh, I, I couldn't interpret the Bible being the word of God as anything other than recognition of humanity. Uh, the lady and then the man here. What memories do you have of your mother? My mother? She died when I was nine, um, Nancy Hanks, uh, a lovely lady. There's no photograph of her. Uh, rather frail, 
Uh, she could read a little bit. My dad couldn't read a lick. He taught me a lot about no free lunch. You're going to work. And that, that was important because I learned responsibility from him, but I also learned how important it is to have education. Without it, you're going nowhere. And my mother grasped a little bit of that. So she would send me to school whenever I could go. Uh, log cabin school, my dad would never do that. He would keep me at home and work me on the farm, you see, a totally different attitude. And then when my mother died, my father remarried, and my stepmother was almost exactly like her. A woman who even owned nine books when she came to live with us. I knew we'd get along, yeah. So she promoted my education as well. But I talked about my angel mother. All that I am or all that I ever hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. And when I said that, that mother was in heaven, you see. That's the original mother, the one who had died. Now, this young man. My uh, feeling about Grant, and uh, you knew Elijah War uh, Washburn, uh, an advocate for Grant, Grant up there in Galena, Illinois. Uh, Grant was a winner. He was the opposite of McClellan. He hated to retreat as much as Grant McClellan hated to advance. That's just the way they operated. And uh, he went over and he took Paducah, he took Fort Donaldson, Fort Henry, Shiloh, Vicksburg, he never lost. So we owe so much to Grant. So I, I had the highest esteem. And people talked about his pulling at the jug a little bit. I never thought that could be. I thought he had to have a clear mind when he went into battle. He could not have accomplished what he did if he was on the booze. Are, 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 are you talking Mr. Douglas? Oh. Well, foreign policy was in the hands of Mr. Seward, my, uh, my uh, capable uh, Secretary of State. Uh, we did not want any meddling in our war. Now, we knew that Canada probably had sent 50,000 men here to fight within the Union Army. Uh, they had their motives for doing that. They didn't want us divided. France put 35,000 troops in Mexico. He sent Benito Juarez, the legitimate president, out, out to fight in the hills, guerrilla warfare. We couldn't enforce Mr. Monroe's doctrine because we were fighting ourselves. So we had to count on diplomacy. And England, who had lost us in 76, couldn't get us back in 1812. The South knew that. They were courting the South, they were courting England to come in. My, uh, uh, minister, we didn't have ambassadors, my minister to England, um, uh, John Quincy Adams' son, Charles Francis Adams, alerted us that the British were making some warships for the Confederacy. This was strictly against international regulations. We were a little bit closer to Russia. Russia was eager to sell that big chunk of land off Canada. They had it for sale for six cents an acre. And the American people wanted nothing to do with it. They said, we're not going to do that. And I think uh, a later administration got it for about three cents an acre. So we were probably closer to Russia than we were to anybody else. <clears throat> Last question. <coughs> yes. How long did you prepare for your address on Gettysburg? Well, I'm glad you asked that as the last question. 
there has been a story going around that I scribbled it out on the back of an envelope while I rode the train from Washington City to Gettysburg. Nonsense. I was invited by David Wills on the committee for the ceremony. I received my invite on November 2nd, 1862, 1863. Could you be present at the cemetery dedication to make a few appropriate remarks? We have our main speaker, Edward Everett, the former president of Harvard. Could you come and make a few appropriate <coughs> remarks? I knew Mr. Everett. He was the best speaker in the country, but the longest winded. <laughs> so when they said, keep it short, I did that. I wrote it before I left Gettysburg. I wrote it on two pages of White House stationery. Uh, the Marine Band was on the train with me when I pulled into Gettysburg. Stayed the night at David Will's home. And I did not have it memorized. I held the two pages in my hand, written on executive mansion stationery. I know you called it the White House, and so did we. But it still had embossed in gold letters on the upper right-hand corner of each page of stationery, Executive Mansion. Jim Getty of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and Tim Connors of Springfield, Illinois. I misspoke Freeport, Illinois. Now, both of these gentlemen are teachers. I think you see they're born teachers. Uh, Jim Getty began his career as a teacher way back when and has been playing Lincoln for many years now, and he's had many distinguished appearances, National Theater in Washington, uh, the Library of Congress, uh, other presidential libraries and museums, very distinguished careers as Lincoln. And Tim Connors has a distinguished career in education in Freeport Public Schools. And in fact, he is the head of speech and theater in the Freeport Public Schools, and many of his students have gone on to championships. His uh, debate and theater and speech students have gone on to championships. So these are both great teachers. Now, one of the best parts of the program, the Hallenstein Center tote bags. We never let a good speaker leave without receiving the tote bag and it has all kinds of interesting things, including Ralph Hauenstein's book, Intelligence Was My Line. And it also has something that Ralph is famous for, Andy's Mints. So, <laughs> gentlemen. Thank you. 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 At this point, Elaine Didier is going to return to us. How do you follow an act like that? <laughs> I want to thank you both, Mr. Lincoln and Mr. Douglas, for being here. Uh, this has been phenomenally both entertaining and educational, certainly for me and I think probably for many of you. Thank you, Gleaves, and thank you, Ralph, for uh, bringing us uh, these 
wonderful programs, and of course this had the support of the, the Ford Foundation as well to make it possible. If you have enjoyed this evening's program, I hope you will consider becoming a friend of Ford, which you'll, will, will provide you with advance notice of upcoming exhibits and events at both the library and museum. We have a very busy schedule of programs planned for this coming season, both on our own and with the Howenstein Center, and you don't want to miss out on any of them, given the quality of tonight's program. I want to alert you to a couple of things coming up. Uh, this is a very busy weekend here. Um, this is President's Weekend, as you know, and not only uh, celebrating the, the birthday today, uh, we have uh, Tim Borcher coming from the, uh, uh, the uh, Nixon Museum to be with us. He is a volunteer at the Nixon Museum, and he is an expert on the White House in Miniature exhibit that we have upstairs. He'll be doing guided tours throughout the weekend, so be sure to stop by and uh, meet him and have a chance to get a, a, a sneak peek inside the, the White House exhibit. On Saturday afternoon, Valentine's Day, bring your Valentine and especially your young ones here. We're having a teenaged author, Noah McCullough, will be here speaking at 2 o'clock on Saturday. He is, he is the author of First Kids, The True Stories of All the President's Children. This is not his first book. He'd already published one at maybe age 10 on presidential trivia. He has done research at uh, the Ford Library. And we've had the pleasure of meeting him. And he's speaking here on Saturday afternoon and on Sunday over at the library. Uh, coming up on President's Day itself, on Monday, we'll have John Schwartz here as George Washington. We have free admission and presidential birthday cake. And then on Monday, we're presenting the Gerald Ford Essay Challenge Awards. And Secretary of State Terry Lynn Land will, will be here. Uh, we'll have 18 uh, finalists here on stage. And uh, the top three winners will read their essays. And Terry will speak. And then coming up, looking ahead in March, of course, we have a new presidential administration. And uh, we'll have H.W. Uh, uh, Brands here from the University of Texas, again, a, a Howenstein program. Uh, he'll be talking not, well, maybe about one of his new book projects, but the official topic is Barack Obama in history. So already, President Obama is being reviewed for his first 100 days at, at both of our sites. So again, thank you to Glees for bringing us this program. Be sure to introduce yourself to Joe Calvaruso, our new foundation executive director. Uh, the exhibits are open upstairs, so take a look and uh, have a chance to meet our speakers. And thank you for coming. <laughs>